Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, Detroit's Notorious Purple Gang. More small talk, and then all of a sudden, they hear a car engine, boom, 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 and some guy leaning on the horn. That was the signal. The three purple gangsters stand up, and they each one took a different victim, and they, you know, emptied uh, the chambers uh, into each one of them. And then uh, the kitchen was being remodeled to, you know, re-rent the place. And there was a bucket of green paint. All three guns were thrown into the bucket. And the guys just hurried out from the second floor uh, down through into the basement and out the back door into the alley. And Ray Bernstein was the wheel man. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rimenis. Thank you for joining me. So it is so great to have as my guest today, Gregory Fournier. He is the author of a number of true crime history books, including Terror in Ypsilanti, John Norman Collins Unmasked, The Richard Stryker Jr. Murder, and Zug Island. I am surprised we haven't had him on yet, actually. Uh... Today he is here to talk about his book, The Elusive Purple Gang, Detroit's Kosher Nostra. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, This is the first uh, gig I've done since the uh, pandemic, and uh, it feels good to be back in the saddle. (laughs) Wonderful, yeah. So you are originally from Michigan, correct? Uh, Even though you're in California. Yes, I uh, spent the first 30 years in uh, uh, the Detroit area and uh, Ypsilanti, Ann Arbor area, uh, before coming to uh, San Diego. And I was uh, lucky enough to have a job offer. Uh, I'm a teacher, uh, high school teacher by profession. And after putting in seven years at Ypsilanti High School, I got an opportunity, and it happened to be in 1979, which had an epic winter blizzard, and, uh, and you know, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I've, I've lived out here now for 40 years. But you are still drawn to Michigan history. Well, my heart is still in Michigan. My kids and grandkids are in California, so, you know, you do the math. But uh, I like to write about uh Michigan topics because and Detroit in particular because they're so interesting and the history runs very deep in Detroit and uh, by extension uh, Ypsilanti has uh, a wonderful uh, maybe not always a wonderful history but you know you take the good the bad and the ugly. So when did you first learn about the Purple Gang and what prompted you to write a book about them? Well, hearing stories uh, growing up in Detroit, because uh, everyone uh, who has uh, a two or three generation pedigree, (laughs) 
has a purple gang story apparently and uh, you know some are uh well they're all anecdotal uh some are true some are false some are you know half truths and that made it difficult uh for me to you know decide wh- where the facts lie uh but uh i saw a movie oh when i was a kid uh, there was a uh movie host in detroit called bill kennedy Anybody in the Detroit area, uh, you know, has their radar up because uh, they know who he is. And uh, he specialized in showing uh, Warner Brothers films and uh, gangster-type films. So that was uh, my uh, earliest, in, in my memory, time when uh, the Purple Gang name clicked with me. And I actually went out and bought the movie uh, as, to do research on the book. And uh, it's laughable because I... I can say with confidence uh, that it must be one of the worst five movies ever made, so much so that it's almost a comedy. But I, I entitled my book The Elusive Purple Gang because their story is so elusive, and part of it is because of this movie uh, that starred Robert Blake, and he, he did a good job, uh, and Barry Sullivan was in it, uh, but the movie itself was a total fiction, and rather than being Jewish gangsters, they were uh, Irish uh, gangsters, and uh, you know, and you just you know, kind of disintegrated from there. And uh, then there, I remember seeing on uh, on the Untouchables uh, an episode on the Purple Gang, and of course that registered uh, in my brain, and uh, and I went out and bought that. Uh, season and and again it was laughable because it did not have any real truth to the storyline at all so i was confused about who are these guys you know the purple gang and i tried to put the story together in a way that would be accessible to the popular reader as opposed to, to the academic reader because there are other books out there about the, the Purple Gang, notably uh, written by Paul Kafayev. His books uh, are a wealth of information and documented. Uh, and, if, and the story had, had been so obscured over the years uh, that my goal was to just find out as much of the facts as I could and then craft him into a story to tell the beginning, middle, and end of the Purple Gang. And there there are some stories that go beyond the dissolution of the gang in 1933. But uh, I stopped there because that's when the gang was officially disbanded. And... Uh, and that's a, a whole other story uh, that, that's in the book. Sure. So who were the main members of the gang? Well, they were the Bernstein brothers, and uh, there were four of them. And uh, the oldest, Abe, was uh, credited with really being the, the, the brains behind the organization, but uh, Abe was uh, pretty old. He, he was uh, like nine years older than his uh, next oldest brother. He had uh, emigrated from Russia with his uh, his parents, and he decided early uh, that uh, the best way to make money was to work in some of the illegal gambling dens in Detroit. And he worked himself up in the, the gambling world, going from one casino to another and, and making friends along the way. And and a lot of those friends were government officials and gangsters from you know other gangs and so on and so forth. And he made lots of connections. Uh, when he got out of the coupier business, he developed what amounted to an extortion scheme. And he uh, was working with a couple of other uh, local gangsters in the Sugar House Gang, Oakland Sugar House Gang. And the Sugar Houses were, uh, you could buy yeast and wort and uh, sugar and, and everything you needed to make alcohol. And it, it was a legitimate business. You know, they uh, had other things that they sold, but of course, alcohol was was their main business. But 
people were not cooperating, some of the local businessmen. So uh, Abe said, hey, I've got uh, a couple of brothers and uh, got, uh, some friends are pretty tough kids. And, you know, they'd work for almost nothing uh, as hired muscle. Uh, why don't we see if they can persuade some of these? They were uh, cleaners and dryers shops, you know, uh, like we have today, dry cleaners and so on. Uh, a very vulnerable business. And uh, so they firebombed a few of those, beat some people up, and they started uh, getting a reputation. And then their name essentially, uh, there are lots of, of legends about how they got their name, but there was a police roundup of a bunch of these essentially young punks. And, you know, they were all tough guys and whatever. They So they line them up and take the picture and whatnot. And uh, some of the, the uh, reporters on the press beat at 13th Precinct said, well, well, what's this? And one of the inspectors came over and he says, oh, we rounded these guys up. They're, they're part of Purple's gang. And I said, Purple, what? Yeah, Sammy Purple. And uh, another guy basically hired out muscle. So when the inspector said Purple's gang, by the time it got it in the press, it was Purple Gang. And it was, you know, no pun intended, but it was a colorful moniker for these guys. And the name stuck, and it became shorthand for them, used by the police and the press. Uh, so they, they, they got their name in the press. It kept getting in the press for uh, bigger and bigger uh, crimes and uh, essentially uh, leading to a, a gang murder and that that's later on in the book. So these are long answers. <laughs> they hated the, the name Purple Gang, though, right? They hated it. They did not like it. And one of the stories is one of the their guys they used for muscle. He was a boxer, and he wore purple, kind of playing on the game. And all of his, uh, you know, his managers and so on, trainer, all had uh, purple jerseys on. But they put a, a quick end, end to that. So no, they did, yes, they did not like the name the Purple Gang, but that's what they're they're known as, and uh, they became the marquee gang in Detroit for a period of, depending on who you talk to, from five to seven to ten years, and I think their reputation is a lot bigger than their actual reach as a gang, but that that's my opinion. But besides gambling and. Uh, obviously, it's it's prohibition, so bootlegging was one of their main sources of income. Huge. But what were some of the other rackets that they were involved in? They uh, really did quite well with uh, what is known as the as the snatch racket, and the snatch racket uh, is essentially kidnapping, and they kidnapped gangsters. High roller gamblers, uh, you know, society people who didn't want it known that uh, they were getting shook down and so on. And uh, they hired a lot of uh, talent from St. Louis in particular to help them with that. Uh, you know, they didn't want their own people who could be recognized. And they'd, they'd snatch somebody, take them to a safe house. And there were several in Detroit, some in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. And as I understand, a couple in the Wyandotte area in, in Michigan. And they take these people, lock them up or tie them up, and they just hang on to them for a while. And But if they, uh, you know, refuse to cooperate or anything, uh, you know, they might get knocked around a little bit. So the snatch racket was real big. Labor racketeering uh, was real big also. And uh, one of their their biggest accounts was with the Meatpackers Union, and uh, they had a real weak union, and uh, three or four of the Purple Gang uh, muscle men went in and started a union, and the top guy was the president, and they had the secretary and the treasurer and all of that, and essentially, they tied up thousands and thousands of pounds of beef in trucks that they refused to unload. So the losses to the meat packers and everybody else was tremendous. 
so they got involved in those kinds of rackets as well. Uh, and, uh, murder for hire. So they, they, uh, covered a lot of bases. One thing I found that they didn't do in particular, uh, is get involved with the flesh trade, prostitution, uh, not as far as running the houses and so on. They did sell protection to houses of prostitution and, uh, gambling establishments and, speakeasies and blind pigs. Uh, a blind pig is essentially, you know, the cops are getting paid off to ignore the fact that somebody's got a bar in his basement or a small little behind another business thing. And in those smaller operations, they sold beer and whiskey, you know, by the glass or by the shot. Whereas if you went to some of the higher class establishments, you know, you could get champagne and something that became very, very popular in the Roaring Twenties. And that was uh, cocktails because so much of the liquor was so harsh, you know, the bootleg liquor was so harsh that bartenders concocted a lot of the drinks that we know today as the Tom Collins or the a Seven and Seven and you know, just other mixed drink, pink ladies and so on. And uh, it was because they were, for the first time, catering to a female audience because these gangsters and industrialists and just everyday uh, people with money would go to these better establishments. They'd put on their ties and their tuxes and they'd rub shoulders with government officials and so on. So Detroit was wide open uh, in those days. But I was talking about cocktails. So uh, that was where the love of cocktails came from because the liquor uh, was of such a low quality, by and large. They worked with Al Capone pretty closely, right? They did. And uh, the first thing I like to say about that is I read three long biographies of Capone and hoping, you know, I could find a, a bit of information here and and something else there and so on, which I did. And there's a myth in Detroit, I call it a myth, that Capone rolled into town and had this meeting and said, hey, I want a piece of the action and da-da-da, I'm willing to pay and da-da-da. And that uh, one of the, the Bernstein brothers, uh, uh, the hothead uh, brother, said, no, 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 we own that river. Anything that comes across that river, we get a piece of, and uh, we've got enough competition. And Capone backed down. I find that very unlikely. You know, uh, <laughs> this was the, the deadliest man in America. He had all kinds of uh, ties to the Italian mafia in Detroit. But he decides to work with these Jewish guys, and it turned out to be very profitable for everybody. Uh, it catapulted the Purple Gang into the most uh, ruthless and uh, largest uh, player along the shores of the Detroit River. And many, many people were killed. Uh, the number ranges as, as high as 500 people died at the hands of the Purple Gang, and I also think that's an inflated figure. And a lot of people uh, were killed by uh, the Mafia as well. But, uh, what, okay, getting back to Capone, he makes a deal with the Purple Gang to be exclusive importers of Canadian whiskey. And there was a whiskey that Capone liked better than any other. It was called Old Log Cabin. It was bourbon, and it was distilled in Quebec. And the Purple Gang set up a, a network so they could keep Capone supplied with that. And it was kind of like his signature liquor. Also, Capone uh, had uh, dealings in Canada that uh, did not particularly include the Purple Gang. And one of the things he had uh, was uh, there's a tunnel that goes under the Detroit River from Canada. And he had a lot of action there and probably brought in more liquor through that international rail tunnel 
than uh, the whole rest of the country because the government wasn't equipped uh, with personnel to really check all those trains, all, all, all that freight traffic. So they just let them go through for the most part. If they had a clue, uh, a tip, they might open one of them up, make a big show out of it. But that's where most of the liquor came from. Uh, but the action and the, and the, the so-called glamour all happens on the surface uh, on the Detroit River. And a lot of the, the gun battles uh, with police are legendary. And it always seemed that the government was playing catch-up. You know, they, they had to buy more patrol boats, and, and that took three or four years and whatnot. And the Purple Gang, they had such great sums of money that they went north a little bit to Chris Craft and to Garwood uh, Boat Industries, and they'd buy these incredible race boats, and the police couldn't touch these guys. And uh, so, it, you know, that, that's a very glamorous part of, of the story and the one that's usually told. But the big alcohol was coming under the river and over the river because Capone also had contracts with somebody who went by the name of the King of Canada. And he had the corner on basically the airplane bootlegging. Capone bought a bunch of World War I bombers from Selfridge Air Force Base, which is just north of Detroit. And he hired people he could trust, pilots from World War I, who now, uh, you know, they were back home and uh, uh, it's a depression. They couldn't find a job. So he hired a bunch of uh, World War I pilots and they had a shuttle service going back and forth uh, as well. And uh, so, you know, the, the story of bootlegging in Detroit is huge. And they say 80% of all the liquor imported into the United States during Prohibition came through Detroit, either above on the surface or below. And, and that's pretty amazing, seeing how big this country uh, is. But Detroit was ideally situated for that to happen. Interesting. And, and King Canada, his real name was uh, Blaise Deesberg. Um, yeah. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Yes. Um, he was known as Canada's uh, liquor kingpin during America's Prohibition. And he was headquartered in Ontario. Yeah, and he, uh, uh, according to everything I read, I bought a, everything I could find on this uh, in Canada as well. Because, uh, you know, they're the other half of the story, and it's always the American part that, you know, I hear about. But uh, this guy, an old man, but he personally would load the planes himself, and then they'd throw, they, uh, the pilot, you know, would throw them down a, a satchel full of money, and uh, the guy would fly off. But these planes could hold about 50 cases in the Bombay. So there was a lot of money uh, to be made. So Capone's uh, reach uh, was was much greater than just with the Purple Gang. Right, right. So you, you've already talked a bit about Abe Bernstein uh -huh. and that one of his brothers was a hothead. What were the names of his brothers and what were their duties in the gang? Well, you know, there was a lot of overlap, you can be sure. But uh, Abe was the oldest, I believe nine years older, uh, than uh, Joseph Bernstein. And uh, Joseph, in his youth, was a pretty tough guy. But he had a, a real good business sense, and he understood that if you want to launder money, you, you have to have a legitimate business to do it. You just can't put it on your back and drive it around town because people are going to well, you know, wonder where it came from and the people like the FBI and, and so on and so forth. So uh, Joe uh, did a, a lot of the, the business uh, end of it. Abe, the older brother, had the connections, and he was the elder statesman of the game. Raymond was uh, a year, maybe two years uh, younger than Joe, and he was uh, the face of the gang on the street. And as I say in my book, you know, if uh, 
Ray came looking for you, you didn't want to be found. But he he had cunning and other attributes, uh, persuasive attributes. Uh, so he was very valuable. And then uh, the youngest, uh, several years younger than Raymond, was uh, Isidore Bernstein, known as Izzy. And Izzy was kind of the go-for. And uh, he was uh, the least criminally inclined, I, I guess you could say. And uh, he dealt with a lot of the gambling operations. And uh, him and Abe, the oldest and the youngest, basically controlled the gambling part. And uh, Joseph and Raymond controlled the prohibition part of it, the bootlegging part of it. If somebody needed to get uh, eliminated, uh, those were the, the people that were in the loop on that. Abe would always caution against it, you know, blood draws the police, you know, but uh, the hothead Raymond uh, uh, was basically responsible for the demise of the Purples as a gang uh, because of a murder that he arranged and he didn't pull the trigger, but you know, he was the wheel man, set the whole thing up, and uh, that was the Collingwood apartment massacre. And that essentially uh, broke the gang up uh, because three of their most important members all went up to Marquette Prison. That's where they landed. And, uh, and things just went from bad to worse. So early on, one of the murders that really caught headlines was the slaying of patrolman Vivian Welch. Uh, could you tell that story? Yeah, uh, the Vivian Welch story was uh, basically one about double cross, and Vivian apparently had been on the take, and you know was not much of a threat. But he made the mistake of trying to threaten the Purple Gang, and he wanted more money to keep his mouth shut. And you know it was a lot cheaper just to bump him off. According to your book, he he was riding in a car with some of the gang members and suddenly it dawned on him that he was probably being taken for his last ride. So he jumped out of the car while it was moving and he bolted off down the street. And not only that, didn't they run him over too? Backed up the car and uh, they ran over him. That's how he ended you briefly mentioned the Cleaners and Dyers War. Uh-huh. Uh, basically, uh, the case was uh, that they were charged with conspiracy to extort money. Yeah. But there, there were murders involved um, that were probably committed by members of the Purple Gang. I mean, besides the, the tossing of stink bombs into laundries, breaking windows, etc., it had escalated to the point where two men were killed. Both opponents of the mob, uh, Sam Stigman and Samuel Polikoff. Yeah, there were two brutal murders of people in the cleaner and dryers uh, business, and that made a number of other cleaners uh, embolden them that if they didn't stand up, this was going to go on forever. So several people came forward and testified against the Purple Gang, the Sugar House Gang, and, and so on. And everyone was acquitted. It was, it was a very, very long, long case. And the mob lawyers tied it up as much as they, they possibly could. And they kept getting extensions on the case. And then other people, collateral damage, let's say, uh, witnesses and so on, started disappearing, uh, moving out of town, and never to be heard from again, and so on. And then the case fell apart. Can you talk about the two men that were killed? Yeah, one was uh, a, a leader in a uh, another cleaners and dryers association, because this whole thing was like a mob-controlled labor union. So a lot of the people got together and tried to form a legitimate union. And one of those people, yes, was, was murdered, and it was uh, an extremely brutal murder. Uh, one, one guy was going to testify, bang, uh, he was dead. 
And uh, the other guy ran a union who had testified in a preliminary uh, investigation, and then he ended up dead as well. The damage that was done to the to the Sugar House gang was in the extreme, but the Purple Gang grew in stature because their names were in the papers nightly. And again, they became the marquee gang in, in Detroit. And it was because of that dryers, cleaners and dryers war, uh, as it was dubbed, uh, that they reached that notoriety. And even while that was going on, they were still involved in the snatch racket, uh, for instance. And uh, so they, they were very, very bold. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So one of the more infamous crimes committed by the Purple Gang was known, is known as the, the Milliflores Massacre. It happened in, in March of 1927 at the Milliflores Apartments. And it started when a Purple Gang liquor distributor named Johnny Reed was killed uh, with a shotgun in the back of his apartment in December of 1926, and the guy the Bernsteins believed 
killed Reed was a Chicago hood named Frank Wright. So the Bernstein brothers decided to, to take revenge on Wright for Reed's murder. The Bernsteins got a notorious gangster named Fred Burke to kidnap Wright's friend, a guy named uh, Meyer Fish Bloomfield. And then Wright was called by the gang and told to pick his friend Bloomfield up at the Miraflores. So Wright and a couple of pals named Joseph Bloom and George Cohen went to the Miraflores apartment, assuming they were just going to, to retrieve Bloomfield and leave. Well, they were met by a group of Purple Gang killers, including Fred Burke and Eddie Fletcher and Abe Axler, known as the Siamese Twins assassins. They were all armed, of course, and Burke carried a Tommy gun, and they blasted Wright and his pals into pieces in the hallway. And and I do believe that this was the first documented use of a Thompson submachine gun in the history of Detroit. Yes, uh uh-huh. And uh, the man who would uh, loom large as uh, maybe the most dangerous man in the mob era was uh, Thomas Camp. And uh, that was his uh, real name, but he was known as Fred Killer Burke. And uh, Fred Killer Burke was involved in Miliflores. He was positively identified through forensic evidence as being one of the machine gunners at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And his gun and the, the fingerprint left on the bullets tied him to the killing of New York gangster Frankie Yale. So Killer Burke was quite a quite a guy and a, and a and a whole story, a whole movie in and of himself. Yeah, he really is a character that looms large in this era. And he he was one of the the gang of killers that Capone called his American boys, a, a group of men with English surnames who really did a lot of his killing. Well, Capone was not a part of the classic mafia. He was not Sicilian, so there was no way he could get into that part of it. Now, he was, certainly he was connected and he knew a lot of the Sicilian gangsters, but he often said that I don't care who you are, or your nationality, if you can make me money, uh, you know, you're one of my guys. So everything boiled down to who could produce income. So yeah, he he hired a lot of people, uh, and Jews too. He hired the the Purple Gang, and they were involved in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre also. Right, right. I think along with Killer Burke... Byron Bolton and um, George Shotgun Ziegler, who were later members of the Barker Corpus Gang, were also involved in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, but as far as, as Killer Burke goes, you tell the story in your book about how Burke was tracked down by law enforcement. It's, it's a wild story. Well, he was on the run uh, for a couple of years, and... Here's a guy who's got all sorts of U.S. Uh, securities uh, hidden away here and there, and, and then other wealth. He always seemed to be able to, to drive a pretty fancy car and off, often a Packard. But he ends up marrying a, a young woman, Bonnie, and she knows nothing about him except he's supposed to be an oil man and he's out of town a lot and selling oil leases and so on. So Burke ended up having a room in the home of Bonnie's father. And it was an old shack somewhere in uh, uh, Missouri, I believe. And it really wasn't much for a a guy who, you know, was a high roller. And uh, so that was basically his hideout. He went by a, a different name and so on. And he just happened to be getting gas at a local gas station and the guy pumping gas looked at him and he says, geez, that, that guy looks just like the guy I was looking at in the magazine, the, this true crime magazine. And he goes and he looks and there he is. And it's Fred Killer Burke. So the guy has to decide what's he going to do. And uh, he decides to call the FBI. The FBI tells him 
because they, they didn't have jurisdiction, apparently, tells him to call the police in St. Joseph, Michigan, because Burke is wanted for the murder of a patrolman there. So he does that. And three of their cops, uh, detectives from uh, St. Joe, jump in a car and they drive uh, 800 miles and they go down to Missouri. They meet with the, a couple of uh, cops, the local constable and so on. And early in the morning, they go and they knock on the door of this little shack out in the sticks. And, you know, Bonnie's uh, father opens the door and the police, you know, sh- you know, give him that sign and pull him outside. And then they quietly go in. Burke is sleeping in a room, door shut, window open, car next to the window in case he has to, you know, make a quick getaway. And the police quietly open the door. They don't wake him up. They surround him. And then one of them just kind of kicks the bed a little bit, pushes it, rocks it. Burke's eyes open and he looks. And he sees these three burly guys standing all around him with guns drawn. And he thinks that this is it. The the Capone mob, because he stepped on their their toes, uh, and 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 the Purples weren't happy with him either. At the end, he thought there were gangsters, a hit squad that was just gonna you know drill them in bed right there. But uh, the cops said, just relax, relax, and they one of them pulls out his uh, his badge. And Burke looks at it and he smiles and he says, Oh, I thought you guys were, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, almost like he was glad to see him. And, and then he was driven up to court and pled guilty to the murder because that was the healthiest thing he could do. If he was out on the street again, he would have been a dead man. So he went up to Marquette Prison on Lake Superior in, you know, Michigan and uh, did a life sentence up there. Uh, and, and had a good record and everything. Uh, people liked him. He was a foreman in their woodworking shop. And one morning, uh, he didn't wake up. He had a heart attack. He was actually charged with the murder of patrolman Charles Scolay. I think that's how it's pronounced? Yeah. Well, there are two different spellings and two different uh, pronunciations. But yeah, and he, he was convicted for that murder. And he had basically been out one night drunk driving in December of 1929 yeah. in St. Joseph, Michigan, and very paranoid. Well, it, it very, and because uh, he had been getting rousted from all of his safe houses. He had a few, and so he thought he was home free. And uh, he had drinking. He uh, traded uh, some uh, paint with uh, a farmer. Uh, a farmer's car or a farmer's truck, and the farmer was really angry, made a big deal about it. Uh, Burke uh, said, ah, put some paint on him. He throws $5 at him and just takes off. And this was after the collision, right? Um, they had this confrontation yeah, over the yeah. chipped paint on his car. And it was not a, it was a, just a small minor collision. Uh, uh, and uh, but he made a, a big stink, and there was a cop walking the beat, and uh, uh, the guy said, "Hey, come on over here! This guy hit my car!" And blah blah blah. And so they go chasing him. They don't know who he is or or anything. And they get next to the car's going to get next to each other, and the cops on the floorboard and tells Burke to pull over, and Burke drills him three times and uh, leaves him dead in the street. And then he went on the run again. The Purple Gang also had a relationship with Bugs Moran, right? Uh, who was the target of the, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre? You know, I, the only dealings that I know are of the the setup for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and the, the Purples, uh, and it's believed to have been uh, Abe Bernstein said, hey, we just got a big shipment of hijacked a shipment of Capone's liquor, and if you want it, blah, blah, we'll sell to you for $75 a case. And that was the occasion for drawing in uh, a lot of of, uh, uh, the Northside gang uh, into the carriage company to unload the liquor from that truck. So the Purple Gang was the bait. 
meant to get Bugs Moran into the garage. They were the bait, yeah. And there were three, uh, the three lookouts uh, were Purple Gang uh, members also. They did not participate in the, the actual murders, but uh, once they called in the hit squad, you know, they had their bug out bags ready and they jumped in the car and uh, headed back down Michigan Avenue to, to go home. Yeah, that's so interesting. So one of the more notorious crimes committed by the Purple Gang was the shooting of police inspector Henry Garvin. Would you talk more about that? Well, Garvin uh, had a, a meteoric rise in the detective department in Detroit uh, police, and he became the head of uh, the crime and bomb squad. Because of that, he had a lot of interaction with really just about every street criminal in the city. And, you know, it, it was uh, found out that, you know, he was, uh, or, or at least uh, suspected of, of being on the take. And I, I think uh, it's pretty clear that he was. The reason I say that is because there were a number of instances where the police could have laid their hands on the Purple Gang. Uh, there was a gun charge concealed weapons charge, for instance, and two of the the Bernstein brothers and two uh, or three other guys were all brought in. And essentially, the case was dropped. And uh, that's one reason why I chose the title, uh, The Elusive Purple Gang, because they had people, they were well-connected, and they had people on the inside who could pull strings. So Garvin uh, was one of those guys. And he uh, got to a point where he was a problem and somebody tried to bump him off. And there were rumors in the police department that there were fellow cops wanting uh, to, to see him dead. Uh, you know, another police inspector from a rival group. Garvin may have had uh, dirt on him uh, of some kind. Who knows what the backstory is, but uh, it got real ugly and it cast the spotlight on the Detroit Police Department and not only, you know, not only on corruption, but incompetence. People who should have been in the loop on certain issues were not. There were little fiefdoms uh, built up within the police department and it was just a terrible situation and uh, eventually, the case was essentially dropped and nothing happened, but careers were uh, destroyed and the underbelly of the Detroit Police Department was was laid bare. And eventually it became a, a media circus you know, because you know the, the press was all over the story and because it dealt directly with government, not so much with gangsters, because gangsters had just put a bullet in your head. You know, they jumped on this case, and uh, it dominated the, the Detroit media for s several months. Garvin was uh, shot near a school, wasn't he? He was wounded, and this is one of the parts of my uh, story that I've, I've never heard or seen before, and the kind of thing I was looking for. You know, because the, the the Purple Gang canon, it's been written about. There's only so much information. And I, if, unless there's an information drop, all the history is pretty much already out there. So Garvin is riding along in his car, going to work one morning, a squad car. And uh, a car, maybe even two, uh, drive up. Uh, and the shotguns and machine guns and, and whatnot ring out. And he gets shot two or three times. And there's a, a young girl walking to school in the morning, and there's some snow on the ground. And she's shot as well, and apparently was unconscious. Uh, she got some uh, pellets in the back of the neck and different other places in her body. And so, you know, she's laying there and bleeding on the snow. The hit squad takes off. Garvin's car and drives up on the street somewhere, uh, and two of the neighbors... You know, in that neighborhood, two ladies came out and they see this girl bleeding on the sidewalk and they pick her up, bring her in the house. And uh, she comes around, they stop the blood as well as they can. But she goes to the same hospital as Garvin goes to. So there's a, a human interest story there 
and I don't want to tell the whole story, but in that chapter, I I alternate uh, scenes because there are things going on with Garvin, including political things and dodging a grand jury and all kinds. Of, and then there's this little girl fighting for her life in the hospital. And uh, so it brings the story right down to a human, very human level. Uh, when you're writing about gangsters or, or just studying about gangsters, you find that the attitude is, hey, you know, as long as they're killing each other, we'll just stay out of it. But it's the collateral damage that often occurs. And so that, that was what I wanted to, to depict, that sense of unknown menace that could strike at any time. Right, right. So you've already talked briefly about the Collinwood Massacre, stating that it, in essence, spelled the demise for the Purple Gang. But central to that story were three Chicago gunmen, Joseph Leibowitz, Jaime Paul, and Isidore Sutker. Yeah, Sutker was the leader. Uh, oh, okay. And they were friends with a guy named Saul Levine, right? Yeah, Saul was friends with Ray Bernstein as well. He was kind of, uh, uh, you know, he was a very minor character. Uh, he was in business with a couple other guys, uh, a bookie business, and acted as a go-between uh, between the Bernsteins and uh, this other uh, group. They were imports from Chicago. They had been run out of Chicago by uh, Al Capone's uh, people. And, and again, that, that's a whole other story. But uh, here they are, and they represent the Purple Gang on a very small scale. And, but they're, they're big producers of, uh, uh, of income and uh, very ruthless and so on. And little by little, they were starting to, they wanted to form their own empire. So on the outskirts of Purple Gang territory, they started open up, opening up bookie shops, uh, gambling dens, and so on. They, they were empire, or they thought they were empire builders. And they were called the, the uh, Little Jewish Navy and the Press. Because they, they bought speedboats, right? Uh, to deliver their illegal goods on the on the Detroit River. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they not only bought speedboats, but uh, you know, just flat out bought them, uh, and I'm sure they stole them too. But one of the great ironies is that uh, the police confiscated thousands of boats, you know, and and all the prohibition era. So what the purples would do is they'd send over people, give them money to buy these very expensive boats at clearance prices from the police. They do all the legitimate per paperwork and so on. And then they went directly into the, the bootlegging service. So uh, there were lots of ways to make money uh, during that period. So can you talk about how they ended up on the Bernstein brothers' bad side? <laughs> uh, they pushed a little too hard, didn't they? They pushed, uh, and isn't that usually the case? Uh, you know, respect means so much in, in the underworld, even if it's uh, other people might not understand it. You show disrespect, uh, it's going to come home to bite you on the fanny. And that's what they did. They borrowed a bunch of money uh, to buy some liquor, and then they cut the liquor, they undersold the Purple Gang and started selling their cheaper liquor. And then when it came time to pay up, you know, loan sharking as it is, you know, you've got a very short term. And if you don't, then there's going to be some kind of hell to pay. And so uh, Sutker, he, he can't come up with the money uh, because he was a part owner of the uh, bookie shop that Saul was a part of also. And they had a bad week or a bad month of payouts, so they didn't have any money, no cash flow whatsoever, and they needed some time. Two weeks from that point, the uh, American Legion Convention was supposed to be in town, and 
they were confident that they were going to be able to make that money and pay Ray Bernstein off, and that's the end of it. Well, Ray uh, was angry because he suspected these guys of killing off one of their guys, one of their Purple Gang guys. He had it on good information, and so he didn't care particularly about the money. What he cared about was revenge. So he sets up this scheme where Ray Bernstein is going to meet with the, these three leaders of the little Jewish Navy and hammer out a, a plan. And, and these guys wanted uh, a bigger part of the uh, import business. And Ray said, well, you know, our family, we've been in the business a long time. We, all the heat, there's just, we want to get out of the business. So that was the bait. So there was a, a deal made, and uh, so these guys think, hey, man, we got it made. We're going to go shake hands and seal the deal. They get lured into the Collingwood uh, Manor apartments, and there were three Purple Gang lieutenants, uh, pretty high ups in the Purple Gang, and Ray Bernstein, who is, you know, welcomes them in the apartment, smiles, shakes their hand, hey, the guys sit on the couch, you know, and whatever. They talk, have some uh, small talk, and everybody loosens up a little bit. And Ray says, uh, geez, uh, uh, I need to call our accountant just to see how much money it is that you owe me and with the the VIG and, uh, you know, the added interest and everything. I'm going to go down to the the grocery store, uh, make a phone call, and I'll be right back. So that left... Three guys in uh, kitchen chairs sitting in the living room across from three guys who don't know what's going to happen next. More small talk, and then all of a sudden they hear a car engine, boom, 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 and some guy leaning on the horn. That was the signal. The three purple gangsters stand up, and they each one took a different victim, and they, you know, emptied uh, the chambers uh, into each one of them. And then uh, the kitchen was being remodeled to, you know, re-rent the place. And there was a bucket of green paint. All three guns were thrown into the bucket. And the guys just hurried out from the second floor uh, down through into the basement and out the back door into the alley. And Ray Bernstein was the wheel man. They get in the car and they take off. But there were some witnesses that saw them along the way. And uh, uh, as I said earlier, that was the beginning uh, of the end of the Purple Gang as a force in Detroit. And Saul Levine, his life was spared because he was friends with Ray Bernstein. But, But the others were not happy that Ray Bernstein pardoned him. Oh, no, they wanted to kill him right there. But Ray and Saul lived in the neighborhood together, went to school briefly together. Saul went to high school. Ray, they dropped out. All the boys dropped out in eighth grade or before, which was not uncommon in those days. But uh, Saul, you know, went to college, business college, became an accountant, had some skills, worked for a couple of years for his father, but he did not like the accounting business. So he gravitated into uh, organized crime uh, out of boredom as much as anything else. And he was the star witness at the Collingwood Massacre trial. And he was uh, compromised, though, in, in a number of different ways. So it was the corroborating testimony of three or four other people totally uh, unknown to uh, Saul, that basically sealed the fate of the three Purple Gang members. So uh, that's an interesting part of the book. They end up going to prison, and uh, all of a sudden the Purple Gang don't have so much muscle on the street. But at the same time that, that all this is going on, the Mafia, and there are two major factions of the Mafia, the East and the West Side, and one is essentially old school Sicilian and the other is new age. You know, we don't care if we work, who we work with as long as uh, we make money. Uh, you know, the uh, more modern 
view of things. And a gang war broke out. There were at least, if not more, 30 people killed in this gang war. And the East Side Mafia came out on top, and then all the other uh, mafia people in town kind of got in, in line, and they formed something called the Partnership. And the Partnership uh, is the modern mafia of Detroit. And, uh, and they still operate, by the way. So what happened to the Bernstein brothers? Well, the irony of all this uh, violence and murder is that none of them were murdered. Abe grew uh, to the ripe age, I believe, of 84, 86, something like that. He was able to maintain his bookie operation. The the next brother, uh, Ray, was almost killed uh, in a shooting by one of his own members who was an opium and I think heroin addict, at least opium. And he barely survived, uh, so he started taking a a smaller part in the gang because his wife basically uh, they had just had a baby the week before, told him it's either the gang, either your brothers or me and your, your baby girl. And so he started taking a back seat, uh, he was still involved with the underworld uh, happenings, and his wife uh, also became part of uh, a scam, an oil scam up in central Michigan. But again, that's another story. I didn't want to confuse this story. Ray, he uh, was convicted in the uh, Collingwood Massacre. He went up to Marquette, stayed there until he uh, had cancer real bad. Uh, then uh, he was let out. He had a life sentence, but he was uh, let out uh, so he could go to uh, the University of Michigan uh, Medical Center, University Hospital, and he was in and out of there a few times before he died. Joe went out to California, and uh, shortly after, Izzy uh, followed him. Uh, They both uh, were involved as consultants in some West Coast gambling operations, Joe, he uh, had some uh, interests in uh, Reno, Nevada. And Izzy, he worked for Mickey Cohen, I believe. Wow. So what is the the legacy of the Purple Gang in Detroit, in your opinion? You know, I think their reputation is is larger than uh, what they actually were as an organization. Legacy... uh, I don't think they they left uh, much of a legacy except their demise allowed for the consolidation of organized crime in Detroit. So that's not much of a legacy. But uh, no, I I know they were not empire builders. They were basically a one-generation gang. Uh, You know, it wasn't like we're going to bring our kids and our nephews and cousins and uh, uncle Uncle Joe from uh, Sicily and, and all that. It was not like that. It was a very tight, close organization that contracted out for a lot of the, the violence and murders uh, that were committed. So, It was one of the only major cities in the country, uh, at least for a while, that was run by a Jewish gang. Uh, Minneapolis, I know, for many years was run by Jewish mobsters. But but that's a really interesting uh, footnote, isn't it? Yeah, they dominated the rackets and uh, just about everything, you know, all kinds of petty crimes, too. They had uh, burglary crews. You know, they had lots of things, except, like I said, for prostitution. Uh, I didn't find any evidence that they were directly involved in that business except as uh, getting protection money from them. Everything else, they worked with, with gangs uh, in Hamtramck and Wyandotte, Dearborn, Gross Point. They, like I said, they worked with whoever could make them money. And that's what organized crime is really all about, uh, that and, and the power of it once you get to that level. Well, tell us about your website and your other books. Well, my website, author site, is uh, Gregory A. Fournier. Dot com, And uh, 
I have my four books on there, a little synopsis of each, uh, some of the awards I've uh, won. And I have the website, uh, and I also have uh, an author site on uh, Google and Amazon and so on. I love what I'm doing, and my legacy, I hope, is to uh, tell some of the history that Detroiters have either forgotten or, you know, it's it's too laborsome to to draw the information together, and I enjoy doing that. So um, that would be my legacy. Uh, so that that's my my website, and you know I've got Facebook. I, I basically uh, use that to to reach out to readers. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it, and uh, thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Gregory Fournier. He is the author of the elusive Purple Gang, Detroit's Kosher Nostra. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.